you got a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5 once again. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll read this morning verses 15 through 21. If you don't have it with you or in front of you, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ." Now before we dig into this text this morning, I want to do a little recap as far as where we've been these last couple of weeks. So if you missed it, we can catch you up to where we are today. Uh, Week one in this series called The Mirror of Marriage, we took a look at the fact that marriage is not a social contract. It is a sacred covenant. And we saw the differences between those two things, some of the contrast that marriage is not built on the celebration of current feelings of love, but it's built on the promise of future love, right? That I'm going to love this person no matter how I feel about them a year from now or two years from now or five years from now. I'm going to continue to act in loving ways towards them. In addition, marriage does not lead us toward bondage. That promise of future love doesn't lead us toward bondage to our fickle desires, but rather leads us to the freedom as we experience the kind of trust that is built through promise and fulfillment. The greatest freedom you can experience in any human relationship is that of trust. Third, we saw the fact that marriage does not rise and fall, promise does not rise and fall on the idea of another person, but it remains even as reality replaces fantasy, and even whenever what you thought would be is not what is, when that settles in, you maintain course and continue to be faithful because you've promised to love moving forward into the future. Fourth, we saw the beauty of this covenant love is uh, it, it's a beautiful thing. It's not a functional thing where I'm just trying to get from people, but I'm able to give to them because I realize I'm moving into a relationship where I can be fully known and fully loved. They can know everything about me. I can put all my cards on the table and I'm going to be loved in spite of all these things that are now becoming transparent and being revealed to the other person. And that's a beautiful thing. And here's why. Because it, it is a reflection. It is a mirror reflecting back to the world the kind of love with which God has loved us through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Because we as His people are a people who are fully known by Him. He sees through every inch of our soul and yet has loved us in spite of it. That's what we saw week one. Week two, last week we took a look at the fact that marriage was not designed Merely for your personal satisfaction, but for your mutual sanctification. For your mutual sanctification that God is aiming, right? Most of us think God, that marriage, the, 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 the intent of marriage is to make us happy. But God's intent in marriage is to make you holy and through that make you happy. Right? We said that Paul doesn't order his argument in haphazard ways. He doesn't just kind of take this from over here and this from over here and kind of throw them together like a casserole and hope something good comes out. Right? He's structuring it in a way to show us something. At the beginning of Ephesians 5, he says, be imitators of God. At the end of Ephesians 5, he talked about marriage. And we said that those two bookends are related to each other in the fact that marriage at the end serves our sanctification at the beginning. 
right? As it makes us clearer imitators of God. Marriage, what it does, if we allow God's design to work, that it turns us into the kinds of men and women God desires us to be, and that husbands should be aiming for that kind of Christ-honoring change in their wives, and that wives should be aiming for that kind of Christ-honoring change in their husbands. It makes us into men who are tough and tender, the kind of men who love freely and sacrifice fiercely for the sake of those who are around them, the kind of men who are willing to say no to their selfish desires in order to say yes to the needs of their spouses and those who are around them. turns us into the kind of women, ladies, who are respectful and humble, the kind of women who nurture others to fullness and flourishing and whose children rise up and call them blessed. Right? That's what it turns us into. But here's our problem. Right? Our problem is that none of this that we've been talking about is natural. <laughs> right? We do not come out of the box hardwired like this. Right? We're not born as promise keepers. You know what we're born as? Promise breakers. That's how we're born. That's how we come naturally hardwired by the fall. We're not born as men who sacrifice our selfish desires for the sake of others, but as those who sacrifice others for the sake of our selfish desires. That's the natural inclination of the human heart. And you're not born as one who is willing to nurture others to fullness, but as those who manipulate others to fill themselves. That is the effects of sin on a broken race of humanity. So none of this is natural. What Paul is describing is supernatural. And so here's the question before us this morning is this, is where are you going to get the power to live the kind of life, to live as the kind of husband, to live as the kind of wife that the Bible lays out for us, right? To break through the gravitational pull. Because you know what the, gra- you know what the power of gravity is like in life? Right? The power of gravity is centered on self from the time that you were born, right? That is the gravitational pull of all our hearts as the self moves to the center of our lives and universe and everything orbits around us. So where are you going to get the rocket fuel to burst through that gravitational pull of self in your life to be the kind of man, men, who's willing to lay aside their selfish desires to serve others rather than using others to serve their selfish desires? And ladies, where are you going to get the kind of fuel that you need, the kind of power that you need to break through that gravitational pull in your life to use others and manipulate them to fill yourself? rather than to nurture others to fullness and flourishing. Where are you going to get the kind of power to do that? To aim for that kind of Christ-honoring change in your life? i got four words for you this morning. And just, there's just four. The promised Holy Spirit. See, the only place that you can find supernatural power for the kind of marriage and the kind of life that God envisions is from a supernatural source. It does not come from natural sources. It is the Spirit of God that bears the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to become imitators of God. And it is no coincidence, church, listen, that at the beginning of Ephesians 5, be imitators of God. The end of Ephesians 5, a discussion of marriage and sandwiched right between... Sandwiched? That's, that's, that tells you I was raised in Louisiana. Sandwiched right between those two truths is this. 
this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because there is no other way to live with the kind of supernatural power needed than, if it, than, 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 than to have it come from a supernatural source. In Ephesians 1, Paul already told us we've been sealed by this promised Holy Spirit. He's the down payment of our inheritance. He is the appetizer on earth for the main course of heaven. Right? That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 4, he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't willfully sin against Him. And then he comes here to tell us to be filled with Him. So what does that mean? Right? What does that mean? Because when we think of the idea of Spirit-filled, we have all kinds of thoughts that run through mind but let's try to get into Paul's mind and consider what he's saying to us about what it means to be spirit filled and here it is church I'm going to lay it out as simply as I can for you to be spirit filled this is to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit it's to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit now the reason I say it that way is I think we get a clue into what Paul means right whenever we Consider the comparison or contrast that he draws in verse 18. Now, you're going to have to go with me for a little while before we actually get to the touch points in marriage, but we're going to get there. But what I want to do is lay a foundation for you for what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit so we see how it applies in the context of your marriage or in your relationships. Right? So to be filled with the Spirit, to live under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the comparison Paul gives us in verse 18 is that of one between being drunk with wine, being filled with alcohol, or being filled with the Spirit. Now, what do those two things have in common? Here's what those two things have in common. And then we're going to look at a lot of the contrasts, right? He compares, but he also contrasts. And what they have in common is this. The person who has drank to excess in their lives, and they become in, in a state of been inebriated or intoxicated or they're drunken, they are under the control, they're under the influence of a substance that they have consumed that has filled their body. They're under its control. It is moving them. It is directing them. They're under the influence of spirits, right? And the same is true with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under His control, under His influence, having Him directing, having Him guiding, having Him leading your life. That's the comparison Paul draws, and that's the only thing that's in common with them, but the, other, the rest of the things are contrasts. Let me give you a few of them. Right? The contrast that Paul, we might draw out from these two things is first, there's a contrast between alcohol and the Spirit, and that while one is a depressant, the other is a stimulant. See, before he became a pastor, the 20th century British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician. And so he writes about, as he does an exposition on this text, he writes about this text in a, in a physician's, in, shedding some light on it for us. And he listens to what he says. He says, wine or alcohol, pharmacologically, that's a good word for you, right? Say that one three times fast. Pharmacologically speaking, is not a stimulant, it is a depressant. Take up any book on pharmacology and look up alcohol and you will always find that it is classified among the depressants. It is not a stimulant. He says, further, it depresses first and foremost the highest centers of all in the brain. They control everything that give man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discrimination, discretion, judgment, balance, and the power to assess everything that's around them in life. In other words, he says, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and his very highest, it suppresses, it depresses those centers of the brain. 
He says, on the other hand, what the Holy Spirit does is the exact opposite. He says, if it were possible to categorize or classify the Holy Spirit in a pharmacological way, in a textbook on pharmacology, he said, I would put him under the stimulants for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates our every faculty, the mind and the intellect, the heart and the will. So what Lloyd-Jones is saying is this, while alcohol depresses those things, it suppresses those higher reasoning powers, it suppresses those those capacities for judgment, right, and balance and self-control and wisdom and discretion and discernment, it suppresses all those things. What the Holy Spirit does is awakens and stimulates all of those things. It stimulates your mind. It stimulates your heart. It enlivens it. It inflames it. It causes it to burn with passion, right? Not depressing it and suppressing it. The Holy Spirit, we may say that you know, when somebody is in a drunken state, whenever they've consumed alcohol in excess, you know what happens to them? They become more animalistic. They become more animal-like because they lose those higher reasoning powers and abilities. And so what separates them in their higher reasoning capacities and their compassion, what separates us many times from many lower forms of life, gets shelved. And you act more like, less like a human. But the Holy Spirit, whenever He invades, whenever He's filling, He causes us to become more human in the way that God has designed as He shapes us into the image of Christ and awakens and enlivens every capacity that makes us men and women. That's one contrast. The second contrast, alcohol in excess leads us to being out of control while the fullness of the Spirit leads us to being under control. Right? Have you ever known, you've known someone who's drank to excess and what it leads to, Paul even says this, is debauchery. That word there in the text literally means recklessness. It means wild types of living. It means out of control, unordered, and undisciplined life. And in fact, you have high-functioning alcoholics and you have low-functioning alcoholics, but both of their lives are disordered. Some are disordered in more visible ways and some are disordered in less visible ways. But they're both disordered. But the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life doesn't lead to chaos. It doesn't lead to disorderedness. It doesn't lead to an undisciplined life. It leads to order. It leads to discipline. It leads to self-control. In fact, that is a fruit of His in Galatians chapter 5. Self-control. Right? So to be Spirit-filled doesn't mean that we're just wild and out of control. Right? Some of us, when we think of spirit-filled worship and we think of spirit-filled churches, that's what we think of, right? Folks just kind of fainting in the middle of the pews and running around shouting and screaming. But that is not what Paul envisions here. He envisions a life that is under control, not out of control. And a church that is under control of the spirit and discipline and order, not out of control. Third, excess alcohol dulls the intellect while the fullness of the spirit sharpens the intellect. You know, historically, whenever revival broke forth and spiritual awakenings began to happen, uh, for instance, like, uh, like the, the great awakenings that took place in the New England colonies, right? you had on the East Coast, what you would have is historically throughout history, whenever those kinds of awakenings took place, what came on the heels of them was an increased desire for education. Almost without fail, every place that awakening burst forth, education followed it. And here's why, because the Spirit sharpens the intellect. You had miners who were going into the coal mines 
coming out to the tent meetings and they were getting converted and instead of going to the pubs afterwards to drown their sorrows, they began to take courses on education. They wanted to become literate and be able to read because it sharpens the intellect. Those are just some examples. Let me give you the one that I want to touch down on this morning that's most applicable to us in marriage and here it is. Here it is. With alcohol in excess, listen church, it diminishes your experience of reality while the fullness of the Spirit heightens your experience of true reality. Right? Think about it this way. When we drink to excess, it impairs your ability to process reality. That's why whenever you drink too much and you get behind the wheel of a car in the state of Texas with a blood alcohol level of .08 and you're driving down the feeder road of Interstate 30 and you swerve off the road and a cop pulls you over and they do a breathalyzer and it pops higher than that level, they charge you with a what? D-U-I. Driving under the influence. Because something else has impaired your experience of reality. So those lines don't look straight anymore. (laughs) Or at least you can't keep it straight within those lines anymore. Because it's impaired, it's diminished your experience of reality. It gives you courage. When you shouldn't have courage sometimes. Right? That's why at the end of some of these little dirt roads out in the country, you got people sitting around a bonfire, 12 packs in. And they're like, man, hold my beer and watch this. And they wake up in an ambulance on the way to the hospital or in an emergency room. Why? Because it gave them courage in a situation. It depressed that center of their brain that said, warning, warning, danger. Right? That fight or flight response is out the window and they're doing crazy things now. Right? Because alcohol diminishes your experience of reality. But the fullness of the Spirit, it heightens your experience of true reality. Let me tell you what I mean by that. See, what the Spirit does, one of His ministries in our lives is to do this, church, to take things that are true and to make them real. To take things that are true and make them real, make them come to life before your eyes. Let me give you two illustrations of this, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. In the Old Testament, in First King, or Second Kings chapter 6, you have the story of the prophet Elisha. And Elisha is uh, the prophet of Israel, and the king of Syria gets word that God is giving Elisha revelation that of, of, what, of the conversations that were taking place with his most trusted council and his most trusted chambers. And so Israel was always one step ahead of Syria. And so this king of Syria says, i got to find this dude and put an end to it. So he summons his army and he sends horsemen, chariots, to go and find Elisha. When they show up where Elisha is encamped, they encircle the camp at night. And in the morning, whenever people arise and they walk out of their tents, and Elisha's servant pierces his eyes up to the hills above them, and he sees the Syrian army encircling them on all sides, he has a, what I would call a freak-out moment, right? He just kind of stops down and says, what are we going to do? And Elisha doesn't say, now's the time to bust into the crate of reserve whiskey and just drown our sorrows and pretend like they're not there. Why? Because it diminishes your experience of reality. But here's what Elisha, Elisha does. He says, let's pray. He gets on his knees before God and says, God, would you persuade my servant that what is act, of what is act, would you make what is true real before him? That those who are with us are more than those who are against us. 
And he prays that God would open the eyes of his servant to see this. And so when his servant's eyes are open after the prayer, he sees what? They made a movie out of this. What's it called? Chariots of fire encircling them. And the host, the the Lord of hosts, the armies of God are encircling them. Because that's the Holy Spirit. That's what God does. Whenever you're filled with the Spirit, He sharpens your understanding of true reality, of what's actually taking place. Sometimes He pulls the curtain back on the screen of human history and allows you to see that indeed the sovereign Lord is in control of all things, including my life, including what's going on in my job, including what's going on in my home, including what's going on in my family, including what's going on in my marriage. He's in control of all things. Alcohol diminishes your experience of reality. The Holy Spirit stimulates, heightens your experience of true reality that there is something beyond this material world. And you come to see it and realize it. Illustration from the New Testament in Romans chapter 5. Paul lays out an argument. That's what Paul's good at. He's good at arguing. He lays out an argument and with a string of effects that suffering has in our lives. As he lays out this argument, he's talking about the fact that we are the ones who rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And he says, not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in our lives as Christians, he says we also rejoice in our sufferings because they're effective. Listen to what he says they do. He says they produce something within us. They produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And here's why. We continue to cling to God without shame, even when all outward circumstances persuade us otherwise. He says here's why. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the promised Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Some of your translations say it's been shed abroad into your hearts. It's been poured out lavishly into your hearts. See, when you're going through suffering, here's what you're tempted to think, that God is not there and that God does not care. But the Holy Spirit's ministry is to persuade you, even in the midst of your most difficult circumstances, that God has not left your side, that He is for you and not against you, that God's love is real and palpable and touchable and tangible in your life. The Holy Spirit's persuading of you, persuading you of that. That's His ministry. To take that which is true, of course, Jesus loves me. But why go through all this? Of course God loves me, but, why, but what about this? To take the things that are true, that you know to be true, and to inflame your heart with them and make them real for you. That is his ministry, a part of his ministry. And in so doing, listen, here's the biggest one that he takes to be from what is true to what is real in your life. It is the work of Jesus on your behalf because the Holy Spirit attracts us to him. In John chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, He, the promised Holy Spirit, He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and He will declare it to you. Where do you go? The disciples already knew these truths about Jesus. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to make them real. Right? You ever driven by a house 
um, during the day, maybe a house in our community, like, oh, that's a nice house, right? You drive by, maybe it's got a little bit of stonework on the outside, got some nice little flower beds, you know, they got uh, the pansies are dying off, so they're planting some begonias, and they got their shrubs, shrubs all trimmed up, and right, they got some architectural features, some little cedar stuff kind of coming off the front of the house, all things, it just kind of looks nice. You drive by during the day, go, that's nice, that's a nice house. And then you drive by at night, when all the landscape lighting is lit up on that house and it's highlighting certain features of the home. It's highlighting those cedar accents. It's highlighting all the beautiful flowers and shrubs. It's highlighting those, those cuts and corners, those pieces of stone. It's shining in just, just the right places so that you drive by at night and you go, that, and during the day that house is nice, at night it looks beautiful. Why? Because there's floodlights lighting up these aspects and features of that home that makes it beautiful before your eyes. That is what the Holy Spirit does with the person of Jesus. He takes him from being nice to being lovely and captivating and beautiful before your eyes. So he becomes the son who's at the center of your life. And so, listen, we're about to get to these touch points. Some of you are like, man, when are you going to get there? I'm getting there. He, he becomes the sun at the center of your life. And you know what happens every morning when the sun rises? Every single morning when the sun rises. Every day when the light, you know what happens? Those stars that were all littering the night sky, that are maybe as numerous as the problems you feel like you have in your life, all those stars out there, what happens to them? Do they go away? They don't go away, do they? but something is outshining them. That big ball of gas that rose over the horizon is now outshining them. It becomes brighter and bigger and bolder in your life than whatever multitude of problems you felt like you were struggling with. Because here's what it does. As the Holy Spirit lifts your eyes onto Jesus, it's all, it, it has to lift them off of yourself. See, for your eyes to be fixed on the sun means that they're no longer fixed on yourself. They're no longer fixed on your issues, but now they're fixed on His power and His might and His majesty and His compassion and His beauty and His glory and His splendor and His... Let me keep going. Everything that makes Him who He is. Your, the Spirit lifts your eyes and takes what is true about Jesus and inflames your heart with it, illumines your mind with it, excites your will with it. It turns on the floodlights so that as He becomes bigger in your eyes, all of a sudden your problems begin. They're still there. There's still things to face, but they're going to recede into the background. And so what, you know what you can do now is by the power of the Holy Spirit who's taking things that are true and making them real. You can face your problems instead of trying to escape them. Now I'm about to start preaching. <laughs> Listen, you can face your problems instead of trying to escape them. And that is the natural default of the human heart, is to want to escape our problems instead of facing them with the Spirit. So you can try to escape your problems with substances and experiences, with pills and pilsners, right? And all kinds of vacations and possessions and experiences. You can try to escape all those problems. But you know what? When you come back from vacation, they're still sitting there waiting for you. <laughs> when you come back from that luxurious cruise, they're still there. Whenever you sober up from that bottle, they're still there. 
Whenever the effects of those pills wear off, they're still there. Your problems are still there. But listen, for some of us, we don't try to escape our problems with substances. We do it with other things because our hearts are just bent that way. Some of us try to escape our problems with shopping. Hmm. Right? Can I get a witness? And so we go to the mall. We don't go on a cruise, maybe, but we go to the mall and we buy out stores of all the latest trends, all the latest fads, all the latest clothes, because there's a certain high that we get whenever we make that purchase. But you know what? A week later, two weeks later, when you've worn that outfit once or twice, maybe you didn't get the compliments you were hoping to get from it, it it diminishes and you return to the same place. And so you end up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. Why? Because you've been trying to escape your real problem, real Mm, inadequacies and insufficiencies of your soul before God. You've been trying to escape those things, maybe through shopping or maybe it's through your hobbies, right? Going to the lease or going out to the lake or going on a run, right? I don't want to be full of the Spirit. I want to be full of these experiences that I get through my hobbies or some of you, it's for your kids. That you pour all of your energy and attention and time into your children, neglecting the real issues in your life or in your marriage. For some of you, your escape hatch is your work or your vocation. And you give all your time and attention to your customers or to your supervisors. And there is none or little left over for those who are most important in your life. And now, listen, now we're going to get to marriage. Let me ask you this question. When, when you have a husband and a wife who are turning from being filled by other substances and experiences and trying to escape the problems in their relationship, when they're turning away from that natural mode of operation and their eyes are being lifted from me and self to him and then begin to turn to each other and say, let's work on us. Not work on you. Let's work on us. Think about the kind of power that comes in that marriage. In the heart of that relationship. We're not trying to neglect the problems in your marriage. You're not trying to escape the problems in your marriage. You're not trying to overlook the problems in your marriage. You're not suppressing the problems in your marriage. You're not drinking them away or shopping them away or playing them away or working them away or raising your kids them away. That didn't sound as good, but it's, you know what I'm talking about. You're not, you're not dismissing them, but you're actually addressing them and facing them. Because you've got two people whose eyes are being turned from self to the sun. And the sun's becoming bigger in their field of vision than all their problems. And so whatever is not burnt up by that. Because what you'll find is some of the stuff in your life will just be burnt up by it. Because you won't be so focused on self anymore. But whatever's not burnt up by that. Now you have the strength and the power and the audacity to face them. Instead of escape them. Now Paul talks about four marks of a spirit-filled life and I want to give them to you this morning right they're four markers these are not things that you do to become filled with the spirit but these are natural outflows of a life that is filled with the spirit and the four things are this first of all and not only these are, listen, not only are these markers of a spirit-filled life, but they can be a marker of a spirit-filled marriage. Now listen, I know there's spirit-filled like diving and spirit-filled basket weaving and spirit-filled all kinds. I mean, you can get a book for any kind of spirit. 
field activity you want. But I believe this is a legitimate way of using that descriptor of having a marriage that is filled by the Holy Spirit as both partners are being filled. And what are those markers? First of all, edifying speech. Edifying speech. In verse 19, Paul comes on the heels of saying, be filled with the Spirit. And listen to what he says. Addressing one another. He's speaking in the church context to other believers. But who, who is the most intimate brother or sister in your life? Should be your husband or your wife. You know that? Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let me ask you this question. What would happen in your marriage if your conversations were marked with words that built each other up and nourished each other spiritually rather than depleting and diminishing the other person by the way that you spoke to them? See, if you're filled with the Spirit, all of a sudden you're now talking to each other and building each other up and edifying each other and blessing each other and encouraging each other. Tearing each other down and diminishing each other. What would happen in your marriage if your marriage was marked by edifying speech, that you were an encouragement, you were breathing life into the soul of the other person because there was life coming out of you, life in you, because you were filled with the Holy Spirit. Edifying speech. Second of all, it's marked by a heart that is satisfied in God. In verse 19 as well, he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You know, whenever you're rejoicing in God, whenever you're giving praise and worship to God, whenever your heart is so satisfied in God, it completes that satisfaction by giving praise to the thing that it finds satisfaction in. You know what? That's why whenever you go eat at a new restaurant, and you're like, dude, that was killer. What do you do? You rejoice in that food that's been plated up and it's all nice and Maybe it's pretty. Maybe it's not pretty. Maybe it's just like a barbecue joint. You're just digging in. Everything's dirty all the way down to your elbows, but you're just like scarfing food. But what do you do? How do you complete your satisfaction in that restaurant or in that meal? You go back to your friends and your family and say, you have got to go here. You've got to enjoy this. Right? It completes the satisfaction when other people are enjoying it with you. And if your heart is fully satisfied in God, listen, church, then it's going to overflow in worship. It's going to overflow in there being a melody and lyrics in your heart that are resonating day after day after day if there's a deep satisfaction in God. And listen, church, what your marriage needs more, perhaps than anything else, is to be built on a foundation of two people whose hearts are fully satisfied in God. So that they're not moving toward each other saying, satisfy me, satisfy me, satisfy me, make me full. But they're able to move toward each other out of the fullness they already possess and bless each other. Somebody needs to write that down. I don't even know how long it would take you, but that was a long way of saying it. You need to write that down because that's where your marriage is right now. You see, whenever you put two vacuums together, you know what you get? A bigger vacuum. That's what you get. And listen, if both of your souls 
are sucking and trying to draw life out of the other person because you're just needy. You bring another person to that equation who has that same neediness and they're sucking the life out of the people around them and you. You know what you get? You get a black hole that eventually is going to crush itself. But if you've got two people whose hearts are fully satisfied in God and they're not moving toward each other because they need and they're drawing all the life out of the other person, but they're able to move toward each other and be able to give themselves away. I gotta move. Third. Third. A spirit-filled life is marked by expressions of gratitude. Expressions of gratitude. In verse 20, Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, church, what would happen in your marriage if for the next 21 days, the next three weeks, time that it takes to build a habit, you were to spend time in prayer before God, giving thanks to Him for everything, including your spouse, including the man or the woman that you're married to, the one that you've promised to future love towards, giving thanks to God for them. And listen, some of you are like, I gotta go through the Rolodex maybe to find one thing to give thanks for because it's rough right now. And if that's you, if there's one thing for 21 days that you gave thanks to God for on your knees before Him in prayer, thanking Him for this about your spouse, this about your husband, this one thing about your wife, what kind of effect would that have in your marriage? Here's the kind of effect I think it would have. I think it would begin to overflow from this vertical dynamic into a horizontal one where you're also giving thanks to them. As you're giving thanks to God for what you see Him doing in the life of your spouse, you also begin to exhibit gratitude toward them as well. What kind of difference would that make in your home and in your relationship? And fourth, finally, Spirit-filled life is marked by mutual deference and service. Paul says in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me ask you this, church. What would happen in your marriage if you were less defensive and more deferential? Right? If you defended your way and your agenda and your art, like, like, like what you wanted, what your desires were, your rights, if you defended all those things less, and you deferred to their needs more. What would happen in the context of your marriage if both husband and wife were less defensive and more deferential and were moving toward each other in serving the needs of the other and submitting to their needs in those moments rather than defending your rights in those moments? What would happen in the context of your marriage? Those are the four marks Paul gives of a spirit-filled life. And what would happen in your marriage if they showed up there? Now, I want to close with this because there's two kinds of marriages in the room. First of all, there's a kind of marriage that says, I know nothing of these things. I know nothing of these edifying speech. All we do is bicker and fight and argue. I know nothing of this kind of deferential because all I do is defend my cause and defend my agenda and that's all she does too, right? We know nothing of this kind of gratitude and nothing of this kind of satisfaction in God. 
That's one kind of marriage. A second kind of marriage says this. I know these things in part, but I want more of them. I want it more characteristic of my marriage. I want it more characteristic in my life. So how do I move towards it? I'm going to give you, because hadn't, we hadn't talked about how this works yet. I'm going, to give, I'm going to close with that. I'm going to give you two practical suggestions as far as how this works. How to be filled with the Spirit. Because listen, this command to be filled with the Spirit, it is a passive imperative in the present tense. Some of you are like, that is so enlightening. Right? Let me tell you what that means. That means this. It is something that happens to you, but it is not done by you, however you are responsible for it. What? It happens to you. It's not done by you, but you are responsible for it. In addition, it's in the present tense, and that means this, that it's something that should be happening day after day after day after day, continuously in your life. So how does that work? How, does, how, do, how, do, I, how do I be filled with the Spirit? Let me give you two things. First of all, you've got to park at the pump. All right? Most, many of us in this room are probably too young to remember the days in which a gas station had an attendant, right? But you, back, back in the day, right, before the internet was invented by a former vice presidential candidate, um, back in those days, uh, whenever you pulled up to the gas pump, uh, you rolled over this little wire that rolled out into the parking lot and it rang a little bell and the attendant would come out. Now the attendant, whenever he came out to your car, he would do several things for you. Perhaps he would clean your windshield for you. He would fill up your, you know, fill up your car with gas. He would check the air pressure in your tire to make sure everything's rolling all right. right. And so he would do several things. Listen, you're lucky today to find a gas station with an air pump at it <laughs> to check your tires. But back in those days, the attendant did all those things for you, but the attendant could not do those things for you if you were not parked at the pump. He couldn't. If you're driving around town, if you're parked in your driveway, if you're parked way out in the parking lot, he could not do those things for you. But if you were parked at the pump, he could fill the tank. He could clean the windshield. He could check and cap top off the tires. He could do all those things for you. And listen, church, to be filled with the Spirit, this ongoing presence of the Spirit's reality in your life where he's taking things that are true and he's making them real happens in your life as you park yourself at pump the place where he fills you and over and over again we're told in the, even in the bible in the bible that the place that he fills you is through his word in colossians chapter 3 we read this text it says that it, we're, we're admonished in colossians chapter 3 verse 16 to let the word of christ dwell in you richly let it live let it to life, let the Spirit take that which is true from the Word and make it rich and real in your life. Set it ablaze and on fire to fill you up with it, to have an experience of the love of God in your heart. Right, no matter what's going on around you, to have these spiritual awareness that there is more to life than what you're experiencing today. That whenever you park yourself at the pump of God's Word, He's able to fill you through that. Whenever, whenever daily, weekly, you're a part of the preaching of God's word, weekly, you're daily, you're reading it, you've got a reading plan, you're, you're just devouring the word of God, that he fills you through that. He takes the truth, right, because he doesn't work without those things. 
Most often, he doesn't work without those things. There are times and occasions in which he does work through dreams and visions. Still happens in places around the globe where oftentimes this is not accessible. God still shows and reveals himself that way. But his normative way of operating, of bringing you to that experience of the fullness of his love, is whenever you're digging into his word and he takes a truth and he lights it ablaze in your life because you were parked at the pump. Are you parking at the pump? Are you opening the word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you? Are you stacking, listen, are you stacking kindling and logs in your soul as you hide the word of God in your mind so that when the spark of the Spirit comes that He's able to light those things aflame and they begin to blaze in your life and they begin to remind you of God's tenderness. They begin to remind you of His mercy and of His compassion because you were parked at the pump. I gotta, I gotta go and finish. But listen, the, 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 the last one is this. You gotta walk the path of duty and delight. See, those of you who've had those encounters in which the Spirit of God seems so real, so real, it seems like it happens in a moment, doesn't it? It seems like it happens in an instant where the love of God floods your heart. But do you know in reality, it happens most frequently because you've been traveling down a path. See, I took a, a trip to Seattle several years ago. I took a mission team of there to work with a church plant. And as we were done with all the work that we were doing alongside of that church, we took a little excursion out into the mountains. And we decided we were going to hike up this one trail there in the mountains that at the end of the trail was a waterfall. And so we... Man, we just, we just got after it, right? Two, a two-hour hike up and two-hour hike back. It was a full morning. And there was a good, nice little, you know, 10 to 15% grade going up that hill uh, to get up to the top. And so um, there were people huffing and puffing, stopping alongside, kind of catching their breath. And they were just kind of laboring step after step after step after step after step. And all of a sudden, we rounded, uh, came up on top of a hill and rounded a corner, and the waterfall was instantly in view. And it was breathtaking. It was beautiful. It was captivating. But you know what? None of us would have seen that waterfall had we not been putting foot after foot, step after step, down that long, arduous path, climbing that hill to, be, to see this beauty. We saw it in an instant because we've been traveling down this path. And sometimes the steps were hard. Sometimes it was laborious sometimes it was like the next day there was lots of us who were just sore from head to toe right why because it was laborious it was it required some duty of step 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 all the way up until that moment in an instant where you saw it and it was all worth it and so often, that is how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. When we come to new understandings of the fullness of God's Word, as He makes those things that are true to be real, it happens because we've been putting our feet on the path day after day after day after day after day. It's not because someone comes up and pushes us on the forehead and knocks us over. That is not how the Spirit works. It happens down a path, not in an instant. 
Right? That's how the Spirit works. Are you putting your feet on the path and walking and following? Right? The Bible tells us don't quench the Spirit. So whenever He prompts you, are you saying no? It says don't grieve the Spirit. So whenever you are convicted about a particular sin in your life, right, do you continue to just run headlong into that and lap it up and willfully sin against Him? Right? If you're quenching the Spirit or you're grieving the Spirit, there is, listen, there is barriers you're putting in place to experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. You've got to park yourself at the pump and you've got to travel this path of duty in order sometimes to see the delight. That's all I've got. Right? We've got to land this plane. And I'm going to do that by saying this, this, this one thing. One of the ways in which the fullness of the Spirit of God is made manifest in our lives, that we're filled with the Spirit. Like I said before, is when the Spirit takes the truths about Jesus, things you know to be true, and He makes them real. And one of the things we participate in on a monthly basis here at Redeemer to stack some wood in our lives is the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table, we come and we remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And you know what? Sometimes, sometimes for some of us, it's, it's, it's walking through and picking up the bread and dipping it in the bowl and going back to our seat. But sometimes, because we've been walking the path, we've been parking at the pump, the Spirit takes the bread and the cup and all of a sudden just there's this washing over our lives of a reminder of the great love of God with which He has loved us in His Son. And I want to pray that maybe for some of us this morning that we would experience that. The only place to find the power that you need to live the kind of life God's called you to and be the kind of husband and wife God's called you to be is through the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come today thanking you for the promised Holy Spirit that seals us promised Holy Spirit that regenerates us, that convicts us, that assures us of your love for us, that attracts us to your Son, that takes the truth of who He is and makes it real and vibrant before our eyes. And I pray He would do that this morning as we take of the bread and the cup. Help us to examine ourselves and come in repentance of sin. Help us to examine ourselves and come in a reaffirmation of our love and loyalty to Christ. But may you take these elements that we participate in on a monthly basis and may you inflame our hearts and our minds with them. Stimulate us for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our good and the good of our marriages. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.